You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens, and as you know, we talk a great deal about research translation on this show. Sometimes those discussions are with the universities that support fundamental discovery, and at other times it might be with the investors or advisors who fund and support early stage companies as they get off the ground. But it's always extra special when we have the chance to interview one of the founders directly, and today's guest is no exception. Until recently, Dr. Heba Kermis was a lecturer and postdoctoral researcher working on a variety of challenges at the intersection of sensing, software engineering, and robotics. But when she and her colleagues attended the CSIRO on Prime Accelerator course, it helped them realize the commercial potential of one of the devices they had been developing in the lab, and it set them on a path to become true entrepreneurs. Heba is now the proud co-founder and CEO of Contactile, a startup whose revolutionary sensor system promises to change the way robots feel their environment and allow them to tackle sensitive handling tasks from fruit picking to surgery. Dr. Heba Kermis, welcome to Lab Notes. Thank you for having me. So Heba, your company's stated mission is to give robots a human sense of touch. Can you let our audience know what that means? What is the elevator pitch for Contactile? Sure. So basically, if you imagine a time when your hands have been numb from the cold and you've tried to do a very simple task that you've done a million times before, like do up a button or tie up your shoes, you realize that it's near impossible to do that because you've lost your sense of touch. Robots today are operating just like that. They have no sense of touch. They are basically just repeating a set of instructions over and over again. Our mission is to give them a sense of touch, much like the human sense of touch, so that they can actually be more reactive to the world and be able to do a whole bunch more things that they can't currently do. So you're a co-founder and CEO of this company. What, what does that mean day to day? What is your role in Contactile? Uh, so we're still a very small startup. It's still just the co-founders, although we will be recruiting very soon. So keep your eyes open. But basically, it's all hands on deck. Um, So day to day, I'm talking to potential customers, potential partners. Uh, My background is also software engineering. So I'm doing a a lot of the software uh, for the sensors. Yeah, talking to investors, talking to basically anybody who will listen. (laughs) Excellent. Well, we'll definitely dive into some of that story in a moment. But can I also ask a bit about, I guess, your personal background? Have you always been interested in engineering? Should our audience be imagining a young Heba building the kind of robots in your parents' garage? So funny you mentioned Meccano. I, yeah, I was definitely a Lego person and my brother had a Meccano set and I always wanted one but never got one. Um, So I did play with his Meccano set, but definitely I, I did have an affinity to those kinds of toys. And I wouldn't say I always wanted to be an engineer. I think I actually wanted to be a doctor. But interestingly, it was being rejected from that career path not not getting into medicine for uni that made me look at other alternatives uh, and other uh, avenues that I could pursue to reach the same end goal, but in a different way. 
And yeah, engineering was one of those ways. So I actually combined a software engineering degree with a medical science degree to kind of form my own biomedical engineering expertise. And then, yeah, from there, six degrees of separation ended up building sensors for robots. Well, let's, I guess, step through a few of those degrees of separation now. And one of them was a literal PhD degree. But you also spent quite a few years in your academic career working around various institutions of Sydney, including the University of Sydney, UNSW, and also the University of Western Sydney. Can you give our audience a sense of the kind of science you were working on during this period, in addition to what eventually became Contactile? So the research was mainly focused on biosignal processing. So my PhD was in epileptic seizure detection. So we were looking at scalp EEG, so the electrical signals from the brain that reach the scalp, and looking at deciphering those to be able to detect when someone has an epileptic seizure. And so that was kind of my introduction to biosignal processing. And from there, it kind of spread into every type of biological signal from the human body. So we looked at EMG, so that's the electrical signals generated by the muscles. I've, I've looked at ECG, which is the electrical signals generated by the heart. Looked at individual nerve spiking signals from tactile receptors in the fingers. Uh, and that research in the, uh, the spiking of the nerves from the tactile receptors is what uh, inspired actually the development of these artificial tactile sensors and, and now the work that we're doing at Contactile. All right, so let's dive into the weeds quickly and talk about the optic sensor that underlies Contactile's technology and, and your company. Can you tell us briefly how it works and, and how it changes the way robots might interact with objects and surfaces? So the, the inspiration for it, as I said, was basically the human. So um, the way that the finger pad actually deforms when we touch things essentially primes the ability to sense particular features about what we're touching. And specifically what I'm talking about is slipperiness. So slipperiness is something that's been extremely difficult to measure. Intuitively, when you pick something up, we know that if it's slippery, we tend to apply a larger squeeze force, like we squeeze it harder so it doesn't slip. And for a long time, it, it's not really understood how we do that. And so there was a, a research project that I was involved in where we actually looked at the biomechanics of the finger pad to understand how it is that we, we measure that. Uh, and so that inspired the mechanical design of our sensors. The challenge then was, you know, we had this mechanical design that, that quite closely emulated what the human finger pad does. But then the question was, how do we actually get any signals out of that? So if anybody listening has ever worked with soft materials, embedding electronics in soft materials is quite challenging. So actually our co-founder and now CTO, Ben Xia, he's the one that came up with the optical method, which basically means that we don't have to embed any electronics inside the soft material because we have this optical coupling. And the optical method is basically, if you remember back in primary school or high school, uh, science class, if you ever made a, a pinhole camera, you know, imagine that embedded inside each little sensing element of our sensor. And uh, that's essentially what, what it is. So we have a light source and that projects a spot of light through a pinhole onto some photosensitive um, electronics underneath. And we basically just track the spot of light. And I guess some very clever signals processing to interpret that data. 
Yeah, that's right. So then beyond that, it's how do we convert those voltages into meaningful physical measurements and uh, and some algorithms to detect slip and measure friction and um, calculate torque. And there's there's a whole range of tactile parameters that we can then measure based on off that one single optical principle. So quite clearly, this is an interesting academic challenge. And I could imagine a researcher such as yourself dedicating many years in an academic environment to perfecting these technologies. But what was it that shifted your focus away from continuing this as a researcher and more and more towards moving out and starting it as a company? So there's probably two things. One was the life cycle of intellectual property. <laughs> um, so we had filed a provisional patent for the technology and PCT. And so you, you really only have a, a short window, I mean, short in academic years, um, a short window to decide whether or not it has any commercial value. So we kind of got towards the end of that window and decided, you know what, it probably does have some commercial value. So there's kind of like this decision point. If you don't make a decision, essentially you lose, the, the IP becomes public and too late, you've, you haven't commercialized it. So uh, anyone can. Uh, so we reached that decision point And at the time we were looking at what other sensors were out there, what other academics were doing and, you know, the likes of MIT and, uh, and other big engineering universities, they were commercializing their sensors. And we looked at what they were doing and didn't think that they were actually solving the same problem that we were. They were making tactile sensors, but they weren't solving that critical problem of how do we measure slipperiness, which is so important for holding things. So seeing that they were having some success with something that we didn't think was solving the problem made us realize that, well, if we are solving the problem, then we should have even more success. And so we, we kind of started that journey. Great, Heba. And I guess one of the key steps for you, I know, is the CSIRO ON program. Can you talk us through that experience and I guess perhaps let us know some key insights that still guide you today? Yeah, so that program was absolutely fundamental in making the decision to actually commercialize. So it was kind of like we were still thinking about it and then the opportunity came along to join that program. And by the end of that program, it was kind of like a hell yes, let's do this. And that program was like drinking from a fire hydrant. As they say, it was so much information, stuff that we needed at the time, other stuff we didn't need at the time, but still needed to be aware that these things exist. And this is something that we would have to um, deal with in the future. But one of the key things that that program forced us to do was talk to customers. I think we did a hundred customer interviews with, you know, people in robotics that would actually, you know, be integrating the sensors or in, you know, the final end users of these robotic systems that would be using the sensors directly and just trying to understand where do the sensors fit, you know, the many different applications that they could possibly be used in and where was the greatest need for it. And then, you know, obviously exposing us to a whole bunch of tools and methodologies and things that startups apply to uh, either prove, you know, find proof points or fail fast. And I think that's something that has stuck with us even till now is that idea of failing fast. Like what's the smallest little thing that I can do to prove that I'm on the right track? And, you know, if I fail, then that's fine. I just need to change direction slightly or, you know, find another way to, to approach it. Most of the time you're on a shoestring budget or a very limited budget. So you really do need to 
fail fast because you can't afford to do it any other way. And I guess on this topic of lessons, one thing we definitely pick up consistently through this podcast and all the people we speak to is the importance of mentors, particularly in early stages of your career, whether it's academic or as a founder. Are there any mentors or collaborators that have had an outsized impact on where you find yourself today? So many. Um, Probably a shout out to David Burt, who was the director of the ON program when we did it and is now head of entrepreneurship at UNSW. He has been like a contactile champion and mentor since, since day one. You know, mentors, I think, have two purposes. One is, well, listen to your questions. And it's not necessarily answer your questions, but point you to people who may be able to answer your questions. Um, certainly no single person has all the answers. Uh, so, you know, having someone that you can call upon who has has been in the game for, for quite some time, has a lot of connections to people in all fields and all sectors uh, is really valuable. And he has been quite instrumental in connecting us with the right people at the right time and telling the contactile story more generally, just like he'll just say, oh, I met someone who you might be interested in talking to. I talked about contactile and they showed some interest or whatever it is, you know, everywhere he goes, it, it seems that he is talking us up in some way or another. And so that's really valuable. And look, I should say you and I met while you're pitching contactile to Sydney Angels. And during that DD process, you mentioned that the path out of academia took some time to negotiate. What did that journey look like for you? And are there any learnings you could share with other academics who might be looking to take an entrepreneurial path with their discoveries? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'm going to preface this with I am just one opinion or one story. And these stories take many, many different shapes and forms. So take, take any advice I give with a grain of salt. But our journey was quite long. So we happened to start, I guess, the licensing process when when our university was going through a change in the way that they approach licenses. So that probably dragged things out a little bit longer than they needed to be. But generally speaking, it's a negotiation with your university. And so make sure that you have some good advice, particularly academics probably don't know much about what a commercial license would look like or a commercially attractive license would look like. And so I recommend getting some advice from someone who does know what that needs to look like. And if you can manage to have the IP assigned, that's probably the best outcome. Uh, rather than some kind of a license agreement. But as I said, these things can take many different forms and it really depends on the academic as well, whether they are intending to leave academia or you know, actually jump out into the startup full-time or whether they intend to maintain their academic position. And that will completely change the way in which you deal with the kind of the technology transfer office at the university. Um, so my advice would probably just be talk to a, a number of academics that have done it before you, because as I said, it can take many forms and you need to figure out kind of what shape it needs to be for you specifically. Yeah, that's really interesting, Heber, and particularly what you said around, I guess, the decision point that academics have as to whether they want to retain their academic posting and kind yeah. of, I guess, work with a company as opposed to becoming the company and moving out as a founder. Can you talk us through your decision process for that for that moment? And I guess what makes you decide to go one way or the other? Mm, that's not fair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll go. So I, I was probably 
exploring other options outside of academia when this opportunity came along anyway. So it wasn't uh, a decision between academia and this. It was a decision between something else and this, if that makes sense. Uh, so it wasn't a particularly difficult decision for me. <laughs> for, for other academics, I know it's it's a much it's a harder question because, you know, you might be, for example, in the middle of a grant and you have PhD students or postdocs or other students under you you know, that decision is not taken lightly by a lot of academics, obviously, because these people are relying on you. Um, so, yeah, it is a tough decision, I think. And I want to say that it's not necessarily leaving a, a stable position for an unstable one. I think probably academia is less stable than people think it is. Yeah, it is leaving one highly turbulent environment for another highly turbulent environment. So, yeah, it's just different. And look, can I talk now about kind of the co-founder relationships? Because you know, teams are a critical part of all startups, but co-founder relationships are probably the most critical of all. Can you tell us a little bit about Ben and Steve and how you guys met and what made you confident enough to join with one another and start this journey together? So um, Ben, Stephen and I have been working together now for, I want to say, almost eight years so Stephen and I first worked together on the human tactile physiology project that inspired this and then on an ARC future fellowship that he had won for you know, the building of these tactile sensors. Ben came on during that fellowship as an undergraduate engineering thesis student and he stayed on after that for a master's thesis and he stayed on after that as a research engineer on another grant that we won to pursue the R&D in the, in the sensors. It's just kind of been what's next like the team is always looking for what's next. How do we make it better? How do we prove that it works in these types of applications? How do we do this? So it's kind of happened quite naturally. And at the same time, even when the opportunity came along to join the, the CSIRO on Accelerate program and then the decision to commercialize it, we were all just kind of on the same page. We, we did have some deep conversations about, you know, what does success look like for each of us? And I think that's a really important question to ask if you're entering into a, a co-founder relationship. And it, it, again, just seemed like we were all on the same page and we all knew that it was going to be a really hard slog, but it was worth it. So after several years perfecting their technology in an academic setting, Heba and her two co-founders, Stephen and Ben, decided in 2019 that the time was right to launch Contactile as a company. And despite COVID-19 impacting much of their company's life to date, they have still made fantastic strides developing their technology to a commercially ready state. I asked Heba about what she's been working on recently and what the near-term objectives are for the Contactile system. Yeah, so we're doing some more uh, technology development. So if the listeners know about technology readiness levels, the sensors are probably at a seven for the sensor itself. But in terms of applications or systems that actually use the sensors, we're probably still at about a tech TRL four. So what that means is we need to basically integrate the sensors into a system and validate it in the relevant environment for that system. So, for example, if we were going to do an underwater robotics uh, application, then, you know, we need to actually integrate the sensors into a, uh, an ROV 
stick it underwater and validate that, hey, look, everything still works. Versus if we were to do it in prosthetic device, for example, again, integrate the sensor into the prosthetic and show that it works. So some of that um, tech tech development in terms of, you know, the different form factors, the different environments the sensor needs to work in, the different levels of reliability depending on those environments. Um, So some of that tech development is is what's going to keep us busy. So, yeah, it's definitely challenging. Uh, I think this kind of technology that the R&D never ends and that's kind of, you know, cutting edge or bleeding edge innovation is is always going to be evolving and the R&D is going to be continual Um, So that keeps it exciting. (laughs) You know, knowing that it's not finished definitely keeps us on our toes. And it's just about taking one step at a time and adding extra kind of functionality or proving extra functionality in different environments one one step at a time. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, It sounds like you're almost offering like a turnkey solution in the end use applications rather than putting all of your attention into developing the sensor in isolation so others can just plug it into their individual systems. Is that necessitated by how different these applications are? It's kind of a little bit of both. So the fundamental mechanisms will be the same, but it's kind of the packaging that will slightly change. So for example, if it's required in a subsea environment, then obviously it needs to be, you know, very high ingress protection and needs to operate under large pressures and things like that. So although the fundamentals aren't going to change, it's still going to be an optical sensor. It's still going to have the same fundamental electronics and things. The packaging around that might change because we need, you know, a thicker housing that can withstand high pressures uh, or, you know, it needs an outlet valve to relieve any air pressure inside, whatever that looks like. So the fundamentals are still the same. It's just how do we package that for the different environments? I don't think there'll probably ever be a one-size-fits-all solution just because, you know, the environments are completely different. The requirements are different. The sensing ranges that different customers want are completely different. Um, But as long as we have this kind of fundamental platform and mix and match, well, it's these electronics with this housing and this Uh, sensing range, package that together, that's good to go. That's kind of what we're working on is that we have like a handful of these options and by mixing and matching them, we cover enough of those application spaces to get to 90% coverage or something. This one might be a curly one, Heather, but it's something that's always interested me about these kinds of businesses where you are essentially collaborating with customers to develop specific applications of a core product. How do you know that you're working in, in a collaborative way with the customer to develop a product that you will then be able to sell to many people as opposed to essentially consulting with a client to develop a bespoke solution that's only fit for them? That's a great question. You know, these, these collaborative partnerships, they take a long time. You know, many conversations with the potential partner and, um, and lots of legals and things like that. But one of the things that we try and, and find out early on is exactly what you're saying if we make them a sensor, are we going to be able to repurpose this for uh, an adjacent vertical or a competitor of theirs or whoever that other customer set is? And that's something we want to try and understand very early on in that process to collaborate. You just got to try and understand the market as much as possible and talk to as many customers as possible. So, you know, in the process of understanding the requirements for this particular customer, I'm also talking to all these other customers and understanding whether they have the same requirements. And, and, you know, it could end up that that one customer is actually large enough to justify 
a custom solution for them. So if that customer, that collaborative partnership is going to end up generating tens of millions of dollars of sales per, per year just from that one customer, then, you know, that's kind of a, a no-brainer. You'll make that custom solution for them versus a, a smaller customer who's, you know, only going to buy two, two sensors a year, in which case, well, we're not going to make a custom sensor for them unless we can also sell that same sensor to many other customers like them. Yeah, Heba, I think that's a really important distinction to draw for research entrepreneurs in particular, because so many of us who've been working in a lab are used to doing R&D and, and spending a lot of time on individual products. But it's really important when you get into the business world to know whether that R&D time is justified by the amount of sales that will come from that particular product line. But let's move on now to the skill sets of a researcher entrepreneur. And as you've alluded to a few times, there is a steep learning curve going from the academic environment to the commercial one. In your view, what have been the key challenges and I guess also the key advantages of coming to entrepreneurship from a research background? Um, so I think being a researcher, we're obviously very open to not knowing the answers. And I think that's something that you have to come to terms with very quickly in as an entrepreneur in a startup. You can only have assumptions until they're proven. And it's the same whether you're in academia or whether you're in startup. It's just the nature of the assumptions are different. So in, in academia, your assumptions are about you know, scientific questions, whereas in entrepreneurship, your assumptions are about business questions. So essentially, my view is that a startup is experimental business. You have a hypothesis that if you make this product and you try and sell it to this particular customer in this particular way, that you will have a successful business and your job is to prove it or not. And so it's very still experimental. You know, how do you prove a hypothesis? There's experimental procedure, there's methodology, and, and it's just going through those, those steps to prove the hypothesis. So as a researcher, you're quite comfortable with the idea that it's only a hypothesis, it's only an assumption, and your job is to prove whether it's true or not. I love that, that phrasing, Heber, that a startup is an experimental business. I think that's very astute. I think a lot of people don't realise, and it kind of shows a little bit the, the level of maybe immaturity of entrepreneurship in general in Australia, but when I tell normal people, non-entrepreneurs that I'm, you know, that I'm doing a startup, like, what's that? Then I kind of go one level higher and I say, it's, it's, a, it's a business. It's like, oh, okay, cool. I'm like, but it's not a normal business. We need to find investment and we need to do this and we need to do that. And I'm like, well, so I, why do you need investment? Can't you just borrow money from the bank? And it's like, well, it's, it's kind of, it's not like a cafe. It's, it's very experimental. It's yeah. I've ar arrived at that summation through trying to explain what a startup is to people that aren't exposed to entrepreneurship. And I think they get it. I'm still not sure. Um, you're talking about Contactile being an experimental company and needing this different kind of funding source, not from a bank, but from an investor. Can you talk us through what that process is like from your perspective of, of gaining investment and who are the sorts of people that you talk to to support what is still an experimental business? That's an interesting question. So there are many sources of, um, of investment. So, I mean, as you know, we uh, tried to pitch to Sydney Angels. We've also pitched to a number of VCs. And um, the key thing that I have come to realise is that it's really important to pitch to 
people either who understand the space that you're working in or an adjacent space. So it's very hard to pitch a hardware technology to an investor who has only ever worked with software. They're just, they're fundamentally very different businesses. And it's very hard to pitch a deep tech startup to someone who's only ever worked with consumer products, for example. Again, fundamentally different. So what I've found is it's really important to know the investor. So do do some research about the investor. What have they funded before? What interests them? Who do they like to co-invest with, for example? Do they like to lead around or do they just like to follow? So investment, you know, you talk about due diligence and usually we're referring to the investor doing their due diligence on the startup, but actually it should be both ways. Um, so even before you approach the investor, you should know whether or not this is the kind of investor that will invest in your type of startup. So yeah, we found that really helpful. Yeah, and it just means it makes for much better conversations and faster outcomes. You're faster to a yes or you're faster to a no if you really do understand who you're talking to before you even have the conversation. Fantastic. And you mentioned very early on in this interview that you might have some new roles opening up at Contactile. Do you want to give a quick plug for who you're after? Yeah, so we're looking for firmware, electronics and software engineers and possibly mechanical engineers as well. So um, keep your eye out. I'm actually in the process of writing the job descriptions and putting them up on Seek. So have a look, search for Contactile on Seek in the coming few days and uh, hopefully there'll be some roles there for you. Excellent. Well, I certainly hope you get some exciting young engineers on board and help Contactile complete its journey to give robotics a human sense of touch. Hebekamas, thank you so much for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast. Thank you. Well, that's all from Lab Notes today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can always check out the episode description for our guest biography and links to all of the organizations mentioned in today's episode. Lab Notes is a production of Eon Labs with music sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Dr. Nat Harris. If you've liked today's episode, don't forget you can subscribe to get new episodes in your feed and check out our back catalogue for any interviews you might have missed. But that's all for now, so until next time, keep inventing.